0: The first prophet we're going to deal with in a chronological order is Jonah. Jonah was a pre-Assyrian prophet who ministered during 793 and 753. So to give you a little bit of an idea, the Assyrians are going to come and sack Israel in 722. So he's coming way before the Assyrians have come. In fact, what makes Jonah interesting is that one, he is coming way before the Assyrians have actually become an empire. Assyria is already really well known for being a horribly evil people who do really horrible, sick, twisted things to people that they attack. But they are not known for being an empire. Nobody has seen an empire yet. Assyria is gonna be the first empire the world has ever seen. Now, they might have used the word empire. Well, no, they never used the word empire before this. Historians might use the word empire of different people like the Akkadians and that kind of stuff before this. But when we're talking about empire back then, we're talking about like Ohio and size, if we're lucky or not lucky. But this is an empire as in it went from all the way from Egypt all the way up through Israel across the entire Middle East into the mountains that lead into Russia. And the world had never seen anything like that. So when Jonah's going to the Assyrians, who are Nineveh, the capital, Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrian Empire, nobody's thinking the Assyrian Empire. They're just thinking distant people, horribly evil. The other thing that makes Jonah unique is that he's actually not ministering to the Israelites. He's ministering to the Ninevites. He's actually going to them and calling them to repentance. And has nothing to do with Israel. And the other thing that makes Jonah unique is he's actually narrative. In fact, his sermon is one sentence long, and everything else is narrative. So Jonah is unique in that he's narrative, and he is ministering to the Assyrians, and he is pre-the Assyrians ever becoming an empire. He lived during the time of Jeroboam II. Whose reign was in the fight or seven ninety three to seven fifty three and Jeroboam the was simultaneously one of the most evil kings that Israel had had in a long time since Ahab before him, and one of the most wealthy economic kings he really had, he was like a Hitler in a sense, and i don 't mean like a mass extermination like Hitler, but truly building a very economically stable wealthy empire but at the same time being morally really evil corrupt and bankrupt himself with massive oppression and jonah came and prophesied a military success of jeroboam the second and when you see jonah there you kind of get the idea that i don't know if i really like him as a prophet and then when you read jonah you're like yeah i really don't like him as a prophet And and that's the thing. So the main idea of the book of Jonah is this. It emphasizes that Yahweh's sovereign grace towards sinners. The main idea of this book is that God really, truly wants to show grace towards sinners. Even the most messed up sinners who can't tell the difference between their left and their right hand. Meaning they have no concept of morality whatsoever. The book of Jonah is arranged in four divisions. Chapters 1 and 3... So the odd numbers are Jonah's interaction with foreigners. Chapter 1 with the sailors and chapter 3 with the Ninevites. And chapters 2 and 4 is Jonah's interaction with Yahweh in the belly of the fish, not whale, it's not Pinocchio. And even though VeggieTales kind of made it Pinocchio when they did their version. And his interaction with God sitting on the hill and talking with the vine and there's no worm if you ever, that talks is your conscience. So if you ever watch Tales, he goes into this giant whale and he lights a candle and he sits in it and has this conversation. And then at the very end, there's this worm that guides him all through the story like it's his conscience. And you're like, can we say Pinocchio, anybody? <laughs> like, instead of a cricket, it's a worm. So you're like, this is called revisionism. This is a structure. And there's a chiastic structure where you see the events of the first two chapters actually get mirrored in the second chapters, two chapters in a reverse order. And you can see that there. So, let's do a Jonah. Yahweh said to Jonah, the Amittai, go immediately to Nineveh, that large capital or that great city, and announce judgment against his people, because their wickedness has come to my intention. So God basically sees in the Hebrew, he says, arise and go. Rise up and go into action. Now, Nineveh is completely northeast of Israel. It is very, very far away from Israel. We're talking about weeks upon weeks of journey in order to get there. This idea of him getting up and going communicates a huge urgency, but it also will be contrasted later as we go through. Instead, verse 3, Joni immediately headed off for Tarshish to escape from the commission of Yahweh. He traveled to Joppa and found a merchant ship heading to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went aboard to go down with them to Tarshish, or sorry, to go with them to Tarshish, far away from Yahweh. So Jonah, in contrast, goes the complete opposite direction. And some of this stuff we're going to know because Sunday school classes like done Jonah over and over and over and over again. And so he goes, but what's interesting here is the word yadard is used a lot. Yadard means down. And so God basically says, go up, arise, and go. And instead, Jonah goes down down to Joppa, which is a port city to get a boat. And then he goes down into the bottom of the boat. And then he's going to go down into the belly of the whale. And God is going to take the whale down into the depths of the sea. And not only that, he's going the complete opposite direction. And so instead of going towards Nineveh, he goes towards Tarshish. And we don't know exactly where Tarshish is, but it's somewhere on the Mediterranean. And so he's going the opposite direction. And he's going as far away from God as he can. And here, the other thing that's interesting here is, nowhere in the First Testament do you ever see the Israelite people being sea people. They don't get on boats. And they don't sail. The first time you ever see any kind of boat and fishing is the Second Testament on a teeny little lake called the Galilee. And even then, nobody goes on the ocean. Nobody goes in the Mediterranean. You don't see that. The Israelites are not known for being seafaring people. In fact, a lot of these, there's some people, the Canaanites who lived during this time period, there's almost this fear of the sea. Because remember, the sea is hurricanes and typhoons. I mean, even today, the most powerful force in all of nature is the wind and the sea mixed together. And with all of our technology, we have not been able to do anything to thwart that in any kind of a way. And so imagine being a people group with n- not having large ships and technology and how afraid you would be of the sea. And even the idea of transporting people over the sea is a very rare thing in the ancient world. So Jonah's so desperate to get away from God that he actually does the one thing that no Israelite does. He goes to the sea and sails across it, which would be a, a huge task for him. And the ir- irony here is he's also running away from God. It says that he ran to get away from God. The irony here is he's later going to say, I serve Yahweh, who is the God of the sky, and the land, and the sea, everything. Well, why in the world do you think you can get away from him when he's the God of the sea? Because remember, in the ancient world, the gods were not the God of everything. They were the God of the sun, or the God of the crops, or the God of the sea. So he's like, my God is the God of everything, which means there is no getting away from him, Jonah, you ding-dong. So why are you even trying to do this? He's not actually trying to flee God, he's trying to flee his responsibility, God. Now, we are not told why he's disobeying God. We're not told. The only thing we know right now is that he's disobeying God, but we don't know why. And the second thing we know is every single time a prophet disobeys God, God always kills him. Not when a prophet sins, because everybody sins, But when a prophet disobeys a direct command from God, he dies. Starting with Moses. Moses disobeyed God a direct command, and God said, you're going to die outside the land. That's the only two things we know. We don't know why he's disobeying, and we're probably expecting that he should be dying soon. He should be dying soon. But the God of the land and the sky and the sea hurled... A powerful whirlwind or storm on the sea, such a violent tempest arose on the sea that the ship threatened to break up. Now remember, every single time you see the storm or the whirlwind in the Bible, God is showing up in judgment. Every single time. You see this when God shows up on Mount Sinai? He's not exactly judging them, but he's giving them the law that will end up judging them. And even the people are like, oh my gosh, we can't stand to be in his presence. We can't stand to see his voice because it's just too scary and freaky. You stop talking to this God and you talk to Moses through us. They're scared. We see God showing up in the storm with Job. We see God showing up in the storm to defeat the enemies, the Egyptians, the Red Sea, and the Kishon River flooding to defeat the Canaanites under the leadership of Barak. And we're gonna see the storm over and over again, the prophets, you're gonna get very used to this language. Because the prophets use God showing up in the storm in an angry way over and over again. And so God always, when you see the storm, it always is referring to God personally showing up to judge you and to defeat you or the armies that are trying to attack Israel. Or it's a metaphor of his deep anger that he has for you. Or it's a metaphor for him using the armies of other nations to punish you. Every single time you see the storm, or the whirlwind, it refers to that. So, obviously it's here because is God angry at Jonah? Yes, so he sends a whirlwind and it hurls him. The intensity of this storm is so great that the author, it gets lost in your English translations, but the author actually personifies the ship. And it actually in the Hebrews, says, and the storm was so violent that the ship thought to itself, I'm going to be broken up. It actually personifies the ship. Like the ship is scared out of its mind that it's going to be destroyed and it's going to die. Meanwhile, Jonah in his obliviousness is sleeping in the bottom of the ship. And so he is completely disconnected from God. Now you're going to see this theme going through where everybody seems to be more connected to God than Jonah is. And this theme is so present that even the ship is more connected to what God is doing right now than what Jonah is. And Jonah's a little bit of a sad, Jonah's a little bit of a satire, there's a little bit of a satire because even the ship is afraid of God, but Jonah's not, not enough. The tempest is also so bad that the sailors are afraid. Now remember when sailors become afraid, it's really, really bad. That's one of the things we've seen in the Sea of Galilee when the disciples are rowing the boat and they're becoming really afraid. It's like, my goodness, that they're afraid. Then Now, yes, Jesus is sleeping in the boat there. The difference is Jonah's disconnected from God because he's a ding-dong and should be afraid. Jesus is not afraid because he is God and he can handle it. So don't try to make too much of a connection there. They cried out to their own God. Now, notice that it says they have their own God's. So the first thing the narrator's telling you is these guys have no idea who Yahweh is. They don't worship Yahweh. They're pagans. They're so far away from God that they have no idea what's going on. So they flung the cargo overboard to make the ship lighter. Jonah, meanwhile, had gone down into the hold below the deck and had lain down and was sound asleep. The ship's captain approached him and said, What are you doing asleep? Get up. Cry out to your God. Now, this is a very condemning statement on this role of the captain because in today America, you would expect somebody to say, what are you doing sleeping? Get up off your butt and help us like survive. Throw things overboard, right? But the pagan is saying you should get up and pray to your God. Jonah hasn't done any of that yet. We've not seen him pray. Even though the pagan doesn't have the right God in mind, even the pagan knows you should pray and call out to the gods for help. And Jonah doesn't seem to be doing that. So a pagan is teaching Jonah how to pray, so to speak, or convicting him to do so. Perhaps your God might take notice of us so we might not die. Now that's a very pagan way of thinking. Like, Have you ever seen the the movie The Mummy? Okay, It's a great movie. Um, it's not going it doesn't win any awards for great things, but it's just a good fun movie. And there's a scene, and I love this scene, not because, like, I agree with it in any kind of way, but it really demonstrates the hopelessness and the desperateness of humanity. So there's this guy who has all these necklaces, and he has one of the Islamic crescent and moon, and he has a cross, and he has a, um, uh, uh a menorah, or the, the Jews and that kind of stuff, and this, like, Mummy is like become alive and attacking him, and he just like goes through each symbol to hold it up, like desperately, like he prays the Jewish prayer, and then goes to the Christian prayer, and then goes to the thing. Now, unfortunately, it's showing like even Christianity doesn't help you, so that's a negative thing. But it still shows you how Hollywood thinks. But what's really interesting is that's exactly the pagan mentality. You pray to one God, and if he's not answering, you you go to the next one, and you go to the next one, and you go to the next one. And that's kind of what we do with doctors or lawyers. If they don't give us what we want, or salesmen, then we go to the next one. And that's fine when you're dealing with limited humans, but you shouldn't have to do that with your God. They're saying, hey, we've all tried our gods, maybe you've got a different God, go to him. This is how desperate we are. We're just going through the Rolodex now, right now, hoping that somebody will go to the movies with us tonight. So that we may not die. The sailors said to one another, come, let us cast lots to find out whose fault it is in this disaster to overtake us. Now, every single time people cast lots in the Bible, it's always bad. When they cast lots to see who sinned after Jericho or after Ai being defeated after Jericho, they cast lots and they find Achan and his whole family dies. When they cast lots to see who is like sin and it lands on like Saul and Jonathan, Saul tries to kill his son Jonathan. When they, when they cast lots to see who should be the next disciple to replace Judas, they get Matthias, which is bad because it should have been Paul. That's the point that Paul is making later in the epistles. If they had trusted God and waited and not rolled the dice, we would have actually had me. So, now that's not meant to be arrogant. It's meant that I was God's chosen people. And whenever you see this, and when they cast lots to divide Jesus' clothing... It's with the intention of stealing from him and then killing him. So something bad is going to happen. Of course, we know what's going to happen. A giant fish. And Jonah was picked. So there's definitely God working. They said to him, tell us whose fault it is that this disaster has overtaken us. What's your occupation? Now remember, a prophet is someone who's on the divine council of Yahweh. And divine counsel is where the prophets brought up into heaven with all the other elohim or angels or divine beings or whatever you want to call them. We use the word angels a lot, and they make decisions with God, and God can trump them at any time and that kind of stuff. Um, but so basically, who would know better than anybody what's going on than the guy who has a direct link to Yahweh? And nobody else in the world does. Well, other than prophets, not like nobody else, but no other office, no other position has a direct link. So, where do you come from? What is your country? Who are your people? He said to them, I am a Hebrew. Now, the word Hebrew, there are three words that are used of Israel in the First Testament um, or throughout the Bible. The word Israelite is the word that is always used by God and the Israelites of themselves all throughout the First Testament. Okay, it refers to who they are as God's people. The second word is Hebrew. Whenever you see the word Hebrew, the only time you ever see that word is when foreigners are talking about the Israelites or the Israelites are talking about themselves to foreigners. The word Hebrew is a derogatory term. It's not exactly like a cuss word derogatory term like, or an anti-that-people group derogatory term, but it's more of a demeaning like, oh, you know, the poor people over there, okay? It's, it's So it's like, I, you're just Hebrews. You're the poor people who live in that part of the world, and we're better than you because we're foreigners with lots of money and power. And so the word means that. And so he's using the word that they would expect to hear. And I worship Yahweh, the God of heaven, or the sky, who made the sea and the dry land. So he makes it very clear, my God is absolutely unique. We've already talked about this. But the idea is, I serve a God that is not like yours. You've been going through your Rolodex, hoping that somebody has the answer. I'm telling you, my God is responsible for everything. He is the one that you need to go to. And you're like, finally Jonah, good for you. Except, you're gonna find that he has good theology, but not good practice. Hearing this, the men became even more afraid and said to him, what have you done? Now they're immediately assuming it's him. Now notice that they're afraid when they hear about this God, but Jonas not. The men said this because they knew that he was trying to escape from Yahweh because he had previously told them this. So he had previously told them, I'm escaping my God, but he had not told them who his God was. Because the storm was growing worse and worse, they said to him, what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? He said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea to make the sea quiet down because they know it's my fault. You are in this severe storm. Instead, they tried to row back to the land, but they were not able to do so because the storm kept growing worse and worse and worse. Now, here's what's interesting. We often have been taught this or read this as that this is an altruistic moment for Jonah. Like, look at good old Jonah. He's willing to sacrifice himself in order to save their lives. Isn't that a good noble trait? No, it's not. Think about it. Jonah, first of all, when he stands up and says, I serve Yahweh, the first thing he should be doing as he's standing on a ship amongst a bunch of pagans with a storm of judgment coming down is to preach who Yahweh is and preach repentance, right? I mean, all throughout the prophets, you see them saying, the storm is coming, repent, and Yahweh will forgive you. But he doesn't do that. Nowhere does he say you should repent. Nor where does he repent. There's no repentance. He doesn't say, oh God, I'm so sorry. Instead, he actually would rather die. you know how disconnected from God and how stubborn you have to be that you choose death over repentance? That's not a good moral person. If, you, if your pastor, or your prophets, or your leaders of your ministries choose death over repentance, you pick the wrong person. And that's what he's choosing. So that's not a good mark of character for him. Second, he's telling them, you should sacrifice me. Okay, this isn't just like the enemy's coming and i will run out and I will like try to stop them. If I die in the process, then you'll be saved and get away. That's altruistic sacrifice. But this is like, no, just throw me to the God in the ocean and let him kill me and I will be your human sacrifice so that you may live. There's nothing noble in trying to save them from an attacking enemy. There's nothing noble in I'm jumping into the sea to rescue something and I die in the process. That's altruistic sacrifice. Now, when you just say, kill me right now so this storm will stop, that's more of, let's just sacrifice me as a human to appease this angry God so he'll stop. That's more of what the Satan was accusing Job of being. And that's more what Jonah is. That's an altruistic. And not only that, if they kill him like this, what are they guilty of? Murder. So he's putting his blood on their hands and on their head, which means they're not going to be guilty of murder. And do you honestly think the storm will stop after that? Not really. This is a guy who's coming to pagans, and he doesn't repent. He doesn't call them to repentance. And he is now putting them in the place of being murderers with a human sacrifice. And they're supposed to be the ones doing human sacrifices and not the Israelite Jew, let alone a prophet. This is not a good guy. This is not a good guy. Notice that even the pagans know this is wrong. Because if they're that desperate to escape the storm and they're that scared, and a prophet just told you, you should throw me overboard and kill me, and they're like, I'm not going to do that, that means they have more of a moral conscience than he does. Because they try to keep rowing. And even when they keep rowing, it says this. They go on and they say, instead they rowed. And then it says, verse 14, So they cried out to Yahweh, Oh, please, Yahweh, don't let us die on account of this man. I don't want to die because he's the ding-dong. This isn't cool. And I don't want to die either because he's making us kill him. Don't hold us guilty for shedding innocent blood. It's interesting as we go through Sunday school class, and no offense to your Sunday school teacher, I taught this wrong too for a while, we see that, oh, isn't that good that he's willing to sacrifice himself for that? But then the pagans immediately say, we're killing an innocent person, we're going to be guilty of it. Why did we miss that part? So even they know, and here's the irony, he's the prophet, and they have more of a moral conscience than him. He's the prophet, and they're trying to do more of the right thing. He's the prophet, and they're praying and they're repenting, and he's not. Remember in all the books that we've gone through so far, you keep seeing this theme where the foreigners are actually seen to be more godly than the actual people of God. Because the people of God have gotten so used to being God with God that they've gotten comfortable, and they've gotten complacent. And they're just so used to the grace and the mercy that they don't take him seriously. But the foreigners who've never had anything like that ever in their life, they seem to appreciate that way more, and they have a greater fear and respect for him. After all, you are Yahweh, and you've done just as you please. So they picked up Jonah, and they threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped raging. Did the sea stop raging because they sacrificed Jonah to the storm? The sea stopped raging because they repented. They said, please God, forgive us. We don't really want to do this. But your prophet told us to do it. All they know is you obey the prophet. Because if you don't obey the prophet, the God will be angry at you, right? Every single time people disobey the prophet in the Bible, what happens to them? God is angry at them. And they don't have any other prophet to contradict Jonah. There's no other prophet on the boat right now. They're like, well, I want a second opinion. Is God saying the same thing to you? So they know they feel like they had to do it because they have no other place to go, and they're afraid that God will be angry at them, but they repent of their action first. Now, this isn't a book of saying... Okay, if you repent first, and then you go kill people, it's okay. It's a, they don't know any better because they don't have the law, they don't have a prophet, and they don't really know Yahweh, so they're just doing the best that they can with the prophet they do have, and that prophet is really jacked up right now. Remember Tamar in in Genesis 38? She was a Canaanite, and she desperately wanted to be part of the Abrahamic covenant, and so she basically, the only way she could be part of the Abrahamic covenant is she married in and had kids, But Judah wouldn't give her his sons. He gave her first son, he died, and then second son, he died, and Judah assumed it was her, not his evil sons. So she disguised herself as a prostitute, knowing he was that kind of a guy, and she slept with her father-in-law in in order to have a kid to be a part of the Abrahamic covenant. And and, and, um, Judah said, she's more righteous than I am. And you're like, what? But then she's also one of the only three women who make it in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And later she's praised for saving the line of Judah, who would eventually lead to Jesus. And you're like, how is that considered righteousness? Because remember, she's a Canaanite. Does she know that sleeping your father-in-law is bad? No. The Canaanites had no idea that sexual morality was wrong. They didn't even know that any kind of act of sexual morality was wrong. They didn't know who God really was. They had no concept of morality whatsoever. And the only people that could ever teach them what morality was is who the Israelites. But was Judah doing a good job of that? Sleeping around with prostitutes and having evil sons that had to be killed by God? No. What made her righteous? She desperately wanted to be a part of this God in his covenant. She did not fully understand him or his righteousness, but she knew that this guy was different and I want to be a part of him. And so she did the only thing she knew how. Was she perfect before as she did this? No. But how many of us are perfect before we come to Christ? Does Christ expect you to be perfect and then get saved? No, Christ takes you in all your miserableness and saves you by your faith. And then through the Holy Spirit, he begins to sanctify you and change you. These pagans don't know better. And the guy who's supposed to be teaching them is not. But their heart is genuine. And God forgives them. He can work on all the other stuff later. In fact, I would not be surprised if God pulled them up into a port and another legitimate prophet of God was standing there ready to talk to him because that's how he works. So he, they are doing the best that they can. And the sea stopped. And then notice this, verse 16. The men feared Yahweh greatly and earnestly, and they vowed to offer lavish sacrifices to Yahweh. They began to worship him. The prophet didn't worship God. And so in the first chapter, you see a pro- the, the pagans are acting more righteous, and they're more in connect with God than even Jonah does. And here's the thing, did Jonah successfully preach the word of God to them? No, but did God use Jonah anyways? Yes, this guy's message was basically... I worship God who controls everything. That's all he said, and it was enough for God to use that to turn people to Christ. When you're always thinking like, I don't know if I have the words to say to speak to people, and, and I don't know if I know all the things that I need to refute an atheist, or I don't know all the answers to everybody's questions on the Bible, what if I don't say the right thing? my goodness, God took a ding-dong of a prophet that only said God is the most powerful God, and he used that to lead the most pagan of people to Christ. I mean, because not only they're pagans, but they're sailors. Okay, and he's leading them to God and Yahweh. Okay, and if he can do that with Jonah, who's like shaking his fist at God like, I don't want to obey you, then imagine what he can do with you with the Holy Spirit in you and way much more of a desire to lead people to Christ than he ever did.